0: Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm McKay Christensen, and I'm excited you joined us today. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we want to spend our time, what to think, and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill the gaps in their day with worthwhile things. That's why I like uplifting podcasts. And this podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. We believe that the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So, hopefully today in this time together, we will get a new perspective of how to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about this simple principle for a happy life. You gotta have heart. On a cool September night, 53-year-old Michael Stefan wrapped up his shift as a chef at a restaurant in the Swissvale borough located nine miles east of downtown Pittsburgh. He stepped into the night to walk home like he'd done hundreds of times. Now, unbeknownst to Michael, three young men were hiding in the shadows, waiting for an innocent person to pass by so they could steal money to buy cigarette papers. Now, that person happened to be Michael, and as he walked down the back alley on his way home, a 16-year-old young man stepped out of the darkness and demanded money. When Michael told him he had no money, the young robber pulled out a gun fired into the air and screamed, give me your money. Before Michael could respond, and without further warning, the distraught robber shot Michael in the head at close range. Michael, lying in the alley behind the volunteer fire station, was later found and rushed to the hospital. His wife Bernice and daughter Jenny would also rush to the hospital after getting word, but after arriving and speaking to the doctors, They learned that while Michael was being kept alive, he was essentially already gone. And after coming to terms with the situation, they decided to accept the inevitable and in a true act of compassion, donated his organs. Michael's heart went to the top person on the transplant list, Arthur Thomas, a father of four from Lawrenceville, New Jersey. 16 years earlier, Arthur had been diagnosed with ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia occurs when the heart muscle is damaged and the scar tissue prevents electrical pathways in the ventricles. And over the years, his condition had worsened until the only option was to receive a transplant. And at the time of Michael's death, Arthur was in congestive heart failure. Well, the transplant was arranged, successfully completed, and saved Arthur's life. And since that day, the two families have stayed in touch. Bernice would send Christmas cards to Arthur, who Bernice and Jenny called Tom, and Arthur sent thank you messages and flowers to the family. Then, 10 years after the death of her father, one day, Jenny sent Tom a message. He said, Jenny wrote me a letter, and she said, Dear Tom, I'm the daughter of the man whose heart is inside you, and I'm going to get married on August 6th, and one further thing, if you're willing, would you walk me down the aisle? Well, it didn't take long for Arthur to accept the invitation. He first checked with his own daughter, who had yet to be married, to make sure she would support him walking down the aisle before her. But she was quick to tell Arthur, go. So he and his wife drove from New Jersey, and at the wedding rehearsal, Arthur showed Jenny how to grip his wrist so she could feel his pulse. The heartbeat given by her father as she walked down the aisle into her new life. So the next day, In the Swiss Vale Church, as Jenny stepped up to the back of the church, dressed in white, there waiting in his best suit was Arthur Thomas. As Jenny took his arm, she found his wrist, felt the heartbeat, and the tears began to flow. When they finished their walk and reached the front of the chapel, Jenny stood on her toes and gave Tom a hug. Placing her hand on his chest, she knew a part of her father was there with her, It was just what Jenny needed on this day, typically reserved for fathers and daughters. Something good happened that day. Compassionate from one family to another, from one man to another, from one daughter to a stand-in father had come about because people shared their heart, because they had compassion for others. you got to have heart. Now, 18 miles away from, and not long after Jenny's wedding, another act of compassion took place. Amanda and Tucker Boswell were welcoming a new baby into the world, and they named him Davis. But just a few months after little Davis Boswell was born, he contracted a virus which attacked his heart. His dad said, it just happened so fast, it's your worst nightmare. Doctors said the only way Davis would survive was with a heart transplant, but for infants, The likelihood of a heart transplant is exceptionally rare. Everything has to match perfectly. And little did the Boswells know that in the next state over, Holly and Jonathan Perry had welcomed twins into the world, and one of the twins, John Clark, had a brain bleed and would not survive. The Perrys decided to donate their new baby's organs. And Davis and the Boswells were the grateful recipients of their compassion. In a weird twist of fate, the two families found each other on Facebook. And long story short, the Boswells are diehard Auburn fans and the Perrys LSU fans. So they decided that each year when Auburn plays LSU in football, like they did just a few weeks ago, the families would get together. And this would allow the Perrys to get to see Davis as he grows with their little baby's heart inside him. Now, when the families met for the first time, Jonathan Perry, the LSU tiger fan gave a special baby sized t-shirt to Davis Boswell, which said, my heart bleeds purple and gold. Now purple and gold aren't auburn colors, but Tucker Perry said of the gift, it's good to know my son Davis has the heart of a tiger. Now, This is not a call to action to become an organ donor, although that's an excellent idea. But this is a call of sorts for compassion. To open your eyes, so to speak, to the life you could have as you give your heart and practice compassion. It will empower you with well-being you won't find any other way. Because you got to have heart. The passion in the word compassion and pathy in the word empathy... Both come from the same root word, which means to suffer. The calm in compassion means with. So the word compassion is to have empathy with, or to suffer with, or to share with others. The definition of compassion is feeling what other people feel, being concerned, showing that you care. And it seems there is a shortage of heart giving, a scarcity of compassion in our world today. You see, for some reason, many of us seem reluctant to give of our heart. Sometimes we're so caught up in our own issues that we don't extend ourselves, or sometimes we're just out of the habit of being a person who cares about others. And sometimes we don't slow down long enough to let our heart be impacted by the lives of those around us. It seems for me, sometimes the obstacle I face in work and life is self-centeredness. And perhaps we're all that way from time to time. The primary issue is our preoccupation with ourselves. And when that happens, our vision narrows, our growth is limited, and our anxiety amplified. When we have compassion for others, the opposite occurs. Our vision expands, our growth is amplified, and our anxiety is diminished. And there's a growing body of research, particularly in the last year or two, of the power of compassion in our lives. Here's just a few of the recent studies on what compassion does to open our eyes to a new way of thinking and living. A recent study in the Journal of Psychology showed that people who have increased compassion are happier themselves and have significantly less depression. A Johns Hopkins study shows that compassionate people are more socially connected, feel like they're part of the community, and this in and of itself leads to a greater sense of well-being. A large study published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology shows that those who are compassionate have significantly less stress and anxiety. Other studies include compassionate teachers were shown to have significantly higher job satisfaction. Compassionate people live longer and have healthier lives. Compassionate healthcare workers have less job burnout. And the one I like the most is compassionate workers are more satisfied, committed, and have higher emotional vigor in their work so why does being a person of compassion result in improved well-being mental health and satisfaction in life well it seems obvious but we are made as human beings to relate and through compassion we expand our circle of relating to others compassion expands the group of people with whom we relate Compassion enables us to see life from the view of others, and this broadens us. It broadens our view. It opens our eyes. And often, we start to see from the eyes of people with whom we might not ever have a relationship, save it were, for compassion. In short, it makes life richer. Researchers have shown that compassionate behavior, such as volunteer work, also has been associated with positive outcomes such as increased academic aspirations and self-esteem among adolescents. You know, as my children grew to young adults, I encouraged them to find opportunities to expand their compassionate view. My oldest served in downtown London, where she met and served immigrants. My son spent two years helping people in Ghana, another daughter in Hong Kong, and another in the Philippines. They came home from those experiences, different people. Before they left, their humility, compassion, view of life, and gratitude on a scale from one to 10 was about a three or four. When they returned, it was a 10. Now, several years ago, when my daughters were teenagers, they got inspired to travel to Ecuador during the summer to serve at an orphanage sponsored by the foundation funded by employees and members of the company I worked for. The orphanage is an anomaly in the region, run by incredible Catholic nuns. The children are placed into families in which older children help care for the younger children. The nuns know that when you get into families, you get into the heart. In families, these kids naturally express love and show compassion. And this is essential to human life. While in Ecuador, as part of their experience, my daughters were taken a few miles away to serve for several days at orphanages not run by our company's foundation. Now, we were only able to talk to our daughters periodically, so I was always anxious to talk to them. One day, after serving at these other orphanages, they called. My daughter, Cammie, was crying on the phone, and I asked her, what was wrong? It took her several minutes to respond. And after collecting herself, she said, they won't let us hold the babies. Not quite understanding, I asked her, what do you mean? She said "At these government-run orphanages, they were assigned to change the diapers and feed the babies, but the women running the orphanage would not let them hold the babies. She said the babies cry and cry with no comfort. And when I asked, well, why can't you hold the babies? She said, because they don't want the babies to create any attachments. This was a life-changing experience for my daughters, who now hold their babies and their sisters' babies and give their full heart to the children. They learned true compassion. Can you see that when you give of your heart to other people, you become different? This podcast is called Open Your Eyes. And there is a view in life, the compassionate view, that is waiting for you and me to come and see. So without serving in Ecuador or Ghana, how do you become a person of compassion? Well, one answer is easy. To listen. Patiently listen to people. There's something that happens inside you when you exercise compassion by listening. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it sometimes seems like a waste of time. But something happens to your heart when you really listen. You put on the other person's view by listening. Soon, you've expanded your understanding because you understand them. Now, just imagine there are two people. Both are the same in ability, opportunity, and age. But one commits themselves to listen with intent and show compassion by listening, and the other does not. Ten years from now, tell me about each of the two people Well, of course, the listener would have more friends, a larger circle, more understanding, more personal depth, and would be a skilled people person. And probably the listener would feel better about themselves. You see, listeners are present people. They try to be fully present with people, and they avoid looking at their phone, multitasking, glancing at the TV, or other distractions. They make eye contact. And this habit of being present blesses their life and becomes part of their character. You see, some of us have gotten into the habit of living a transactional life. What's that? It's when we rarely do anything for anybody else unless we have an ulterior motive to enhance ourselves in some way by doing so. Transactional thinking is where you interact with people solely based on what you can get. And living a transactional life isn't very fulfilling. The result? Well, you're often disappointed because you rarely get what you want in return. You're self-centered and you rarely find peace. And your narrow view of life inside your bubble keeps you from being open to gifts that might otherwise come your way. This constant mental tallying and scorekeeping in your mind can be exhausting. On the other hand, relating to others without the expectation of reciprocity, is liberating. There's no tally. There's no mental scorekeeping. There's just listening as a gesture of compassion. Now, when I was a young man, I was in Sunday school one day, and the teacher started telling the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, and I had heard this story before and wasn't really interested, until the teacher said something out of the ordinary. He said, Do you know why this thing, this marriage of Adam and Eve worked? Because of this. And he pointed to a picture of an altar. He said, there is a law of sacrifice. Now, this was something I'd never heard before. So I started to pay attention. The teacher continued. You see, in Adam's day, they offered sacrifices, usually animals to God on this altar. It was a law to put on the altar sacrifices in the hope that their sacrifice would somehow show devotion, and they believed that they received divine blessings as a result. The teacher continued. He said, but this law of sacrifice applied in other areas of their life, and other things, symbolically, were put on the altar every day. Adam and Eve put their own selfishness on the altar, and in return, they got back something much better. In fact, he said, he believed there was a law like the law of gravity, that when we sacrifice for good, for God, for others, we do get amazing things in return. For some reason, this has stuck with me over the years, that in any human relationship, we are constantly offering ourselves, our selfish thoughts, our wants, our needs, on an altar of sorts. And often what you get back is something far more valuable than what you give. And I believe it is a true law. So when you try to show compassion by listening and when it hurts to give a bit of your time and the person that you're listening to can do nothing for you in the transactional sense, you're putting a sacrifice on the altar of life. And you'll be surprised at the person you become as a result. Now, what are the other ways to develop our compassion and our heart giving muscles? Practice affirmation. Now, to affirm is to validate, confirm, state positively, and to express belief in. And I have noticed that people who give of their heart are more apt to affirm others around them. You know, for me, it's easy to go through my day noticing good things about other people. Oh, she's talented, or he has a fun way about him, or her smile is infectious. What's harder for me is to affirm those same people by telling them what I think. By doing so, we're showing compassion. We're having empathy with them. So, for example, after a meeting, you could say, hey, I loved how you said that. Or after a conversation, you could say, I always love listening to what you have to say. Imagine if you were a person who had the habit of affirmation in your life. Would your life be different? It's so easy to do, yet some of us do it so infrequently. And I will tell you, affirmative people are powerful people. My grandmother was this type of person. When I was a boy, when I visited my grandmother's home, she'd drop whatever she was doing, come over to me, hug me, and I felt like I was the most important person on this earth. She constantly affirmed me. She spoke belief into me. And this was normal course for my grandma. And this continued throughout my young adulthood. One day, however, after I was married and living in an adjacent state, I received a call from my mother. She said grandma had a stroke. She was not conscious and she'd not likely live much longer. So I jumped in the car and drove a number of hours to get there. At about 9 p.m. as I walked into the hospital room, my mom said grandma had not responded to any people, sounds, or stimulus. But as I was standing there, my mother said rather loudly, mother, McKay is here. She said it again to my grandma. Mother, McKay is here to see you. My otherwise unresponsive grandmother opened her eyes. She said, among other things, McKay, I love you. And we talked for several minutes. I told her how much she meant to me. And she told me how happy she was to see me. She again told me how special I was. And after a few minutes, her weak voice stopped and she closed her eyes again. Well, I stayed until about midnight with no change in my grandmother's condition. So I went to my mother's house to grab a few hours of sleep. About an hour after I left, my grandmother slipped quietly into heaven. She opened her eyes for me, just like she had opened her heart for me a hundred times during her life. I think it was just a habit that when I walked into that hospital room, that she awoke to tell me that I was special and she loved me. Can't you see that our lives move in the direction of our most dominant thoughts And when we become people of compassion, our thoughts are more about others than ourselves. And this affirming life makes for a life of depth and love and beauty. There is more in store for you in this life, waiting for you to become a person of compassion and giving. Now, another way to become a person of compassion, give empathy. And do so by letting go of labeling and judging others. What if we could just let go of all the dualistic judgments that label everything or everyone as right or wrong or good or bad? What if instead we could just trust that life is hard and everyone is doing the very best they can? Isn't that what being a person of compassion is? To give other people the benefit of the doubt? And don't we want the same from them? You see, by giving empathy, people and the world we interact with become more interesting, diverse, and dynamic. People become more than meets the eye. And when we reserve judgment, we're less inclined to categorize or label people into groups. We're less quick to define people based on our limited observations of them. And understand that there are countless ways to interpret one's actions which may very well be different from our assumptions. By doing so, you'll find yourself not sweating the small things. You'll have more faith and more hope in your life and in other people, and you'll become more apt to help others. What if, rather than labeling others, we simply encourage them? Many of you have read The Hobbit, the children's novel written by J.R.R. Tolkien in 1937 about Bilbo Baggins and the episodic quest in which Bilbo gains increasing wisdom by applying his wits and common sense to challenges that come his way. After writing The Hobbit, because of the book's success, Tolkien's publisher asked him to write a sequel. But rather than being excited about the prospect, he was stressed. He said, I can't think of anything more to say about Hobbits. And what should have been a labor of delight had turned into a bit of a nightmare for him. I think we've all experienced something similar. You know, when we've reached a significant goal, the motivation and confidence can be a bit fragile. And as he tried to top his previous work, all he felt was stress and doubt. So how did he overcome his discouragement and write the sequel called The Lord of the Rings? Well, it was Tolkien's friend, C.S. Lewis, who helped him. At several critical moments... When he was tempted to quit his efforts, Lewis showed up and encouraged him to stick with the project. He affirmed him, he encouraged him, and he spoke faith into him. Tolkien would later say, I owe to C.S. Lewis an unpayable debt for his sheer encouragement. From him, I got the belief that my stuff could be more than a private hobby, but for him, I would not have finished the book the Lord of the Rings would go on to sell 150 million copies, be published in 38 languages, and made into best-selling movies, all because his friend encouraged him. You know, there have been a lot of negative things that have come into our lives as a result of COVID. However, and conversely, there has been an increased measure of compassion and heart-giving that has come about as well. For example... Elise Fizzler, a nurse in Pittsburgh, drove to a man's home on her own time, two days in a row, including a Saturday morning, so the man could communicate via Zoom with his critically ill wife of 50-plus years, who was hospitalized at the hospital because of COVID. The man wanted to see her face, but told hospital officials he was unable to handle the FaceTime technology. The man wept the entire time he spoke to his wife, so overcome with emotion to be able to see her face. Oh my, I think it was a bigger blessing to me than it was to him, said Elise. To be able to do something like that for someone else was so nice. You see, sometimes we feel so helpless with COVID patients and we feel like we can't fix this challenging pandemic. And it was so nice to be able to offer some comfort and relief to someone. In another example, the staff at a Pennsylvania hospital united a couple, both hospitalized with COVID-19, who'd been unable to see each other, The husband wasn't doing so well, so the staff transported the wife in a wheelchair to her husband's room so they could eat dinner together. She had tears in her eyes when she saw him, said the nurse in the intensive care unit. But after 45 minutes, the husband suddenly became unresponsive and passed away. The wife was heartbroken, but so grateful she got to share a final meal with him and see him one last time. Later, she told her daughter, an angel came and took me to see dad. In many places and in many people, I have seen the outcome from COVID morph from fear to feeling, feelings of compassion and understanding for others. And this, I believe, will make us better, our society better, for years to come. Now, there are other ways to be compassionate that we don't have time to mention here. But if you're looking for a way to exercise compassion— look no further than one habit of the late George H.W. Bush. After his death, former President Jimmy Carter wrote that Bush's administration was marked by grace, civility, and social conscience, and we can look to the 41st President's thank-you notes as evidence. Bush was one of the modern era's great letter writers, and this old-fashioned virtue became his hallmark, an endearing practice that fostered warm connections with world leaders, potential allies, and even his opponents. You see, he knew that compassion and kind manners help a person establish strong and positive relationships. I felt the Bush tears, and we do cry a lot coming on, Bush wrote to Michael Deland, a leader in the disabilities movement, after he signed the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. As he looked out at the audience that day, he wrote to Deland, He felt tears of gratitude for your example, for your cheerful way, and for your being at my side. Bush carved out time most evenings to write cards and thank you notes, writing an estimated 700 handwritten cards during his time as president. Countless times he would send a congratulatory note to a foreign leader for a seemingly innocuous achievement, wrote Condoleezza Rice in one of her memoirs. Even I frequently received a thank-you note from the president for a job well done. And this kindness and courtesy made it a joy to work with him. Bush wrote to the actress Goldie Hawn after sitting next to her at a dinner, thanking her for taking his mind off Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. He wrote to the actor Chevy Chase, thanking him for a briefcase that Chase and fellow actor and friend Dan Aykroyd sent to him. And Bush also kept a diary dictating into a tape recorder. The night he lost his bid for re-election, Bush made a diary entry to help himself get past the pain of defeat. He set out a to-do list of sorts for the coming days. It said, comfort the ones I've hurt and let down. Be strong, be kind, be generous of spirit, be understanding, Bush continued, and let people know how grateful you are. Now, I believe Any defeat in life or disappointment or struggle is diminished when we exercise compassion. When we think outside ourselves, lose transactional thinking, and adopt another's view, we gain stronger well-being. So, as we end today, remember, you gotta have heart. You gotta give of your heart. Adopt another view, a view from someone else's way of seeing the world. And it will bring less stress, a greater sense of well-being into your life, and satisfaction with who you are, where you work, and how you live. Listen, sacrifice, affirm, and what you'll find is a new you. Remember in life, you've got to have heart. And when you do, you have most everything. Thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.